The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is at eye level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery and try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. And after that blast from the past, the moment you've all been waiting for. You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, an essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, American Gothic, John Carpenter, and Toby Hoover, the online network. Welcome. We are ankle deep in the third season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tonight, we leave European shores once more to discuss two prominent directors of homegrown cult cinema. 
worshiping at the unlikely altars of John Ford and Howard Hawks. USC film school student John Carpenter dropped out to kick off what was one of the most distinctive American directorial careers in the 70s and 80s. While few would defend his post-1995 productions as a rule, it's unquestioned that for almost 20 years, John Carpenter is one of the most important American directors. From classics of urban action like Assault on Precinct 13, biopics of Elvis and post-apocalyptic favorites like Escape from New York, to one of the most famed slasher franchises ever and some of the most distinctive horror films ever made, John Carpenter kept his options open and made as many non-genre oddities as he did cult classics right from the dawn of his career. Uh, college professor and documentarian Toby Hooper, on the other hand, seemed to come out of left field with his gruesome, uh, strangely bloodless take on the Ed Gein murders the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Parlaying the film's unexpected success into a career in oddball horror, he gave us strange but often effective chillers like Eaten Alive, Salem's Lot, The Funhouse, and Life Force, not to mention the strangely mainstream CG fest Poltergeist. So join us as we discuss two American cult film directors only here on Weird Scenes. So uh, with me is my long-suffering co-host, uh, Mr. Lewis Paul, who I, I saw sitting on hold about seven minutes before the show even started. <laughs> How are you doing? I do. That's it. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm excited. I'm excited. You were it's talking for a, a bit. Show. You were talking for a bit about, oh, we got to do Toby Hooper. We got to do Toby Hooper. And my wife was like, who's that? I'm like, that's because I don't care about him that much. She knew I was a Carpenter fan. I was like, yeah, well, I want to do Carpenter. And you said Toby Hooper. I'm like, okay, well, they did cross paths, and they are both American directors, so why don't we put them together? So here we are. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think it was a good idea to put them both together because uh, – they're both started out. They both started out as as uh, indie guys. I mean, and yeah. you got to remember, this is back in the time, the late seventy. You know, let's say let's let's pick a time frame, seventy eight to eighty two, ish. There was a lot of stuff going on in oh, yeah. America and, and filmmaking, and you know, Roger Corman was you know he was like. Uh, I, uh, if I'm correct, New World Pictures was you know was blowing out stuff, and yep. um, these two guys. I mean, of course, John Carpenter is going to be our main feature for tonight, but uh, Toby Hooper too. He 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 did a number of films, uh, but um, the ones that are jaw droppingly crazy <laughs> are unfortunately a small number. Uh, the rest yeah. are. I'm not quite sure what happened, and maybe when we discuss this, we'll figure it out. Probably not. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I well, don't know if he lost his zest, his his uh, his uh, raison d'être, so to speak. You know, his lust for filmmaking, lust for life, um, <laughs> or uh, maybe studio interference, whether small, tiny studios or larger ones. Uh, um, there are actually two things that you mentioned that you know brought things to mind. One being that uh, you know you mentioned well maybe talking it out we'll figure it out. I was telling my wife that that's exactly how I figure things out through conversation uh, with right. other people. And then as you rationalize your thoughts and they share theirs and you have a dialogue back and forth, you formulate you know new and changing opinions that will you know basically you know where you're at. You're not going to change like you know with the wind, but you know you kind of adapt your schema and move forward. And this is what intelligent people do. You know you don't lock in and you're the same way you were when you're 15 unless you're retarded. <laughs> or watch Fox News, one or the other. But you know, normal people are supposed to do this. And in terms of the other thing, you had mentioned that 
Toby lost his way and you didn't know where the hell he was going, you could say the exact same thing about John Carpenter because he was fantastic, a fantastic director for many years. And then all of a sudden, he starts putting out crap like Vampires and, uh, you know, arguably Coast of Mars. That wasn't that bad compared to some of the other shit he puts out. But, you know, okay, yes, he did Cigarette Burns. I love that to death. But, you know, really how much of the stuff that he did in the 90s and beyond, or at least the late 90s and beyond, was defendable and not much. So um, there are definite parallels across the board here. Well, yeah, and, and we're not we're not out to you know, and, and and for those new to our show, we 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 if something shit, we'll we'll say it. We're, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, and not not often is we disagree where one of us loves something and one of us hates something. It's it's hard. Sometimes we do. But not too often. We do. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> we do, but not too often. Thank goodness. That's um, part of the fun of it. It's like like I said, it's, it's Cisco and Ebert of cult movies. You know, sometimes we're really going to each other's throats, but so what? <laughs> we're still good buddies. <laughs> I want to be Gene. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. He's dead. Oh, they're both dead. They're both oh, dead. It <laughs> as long as none of us are Rex Reed, we're okay. Uh, yeah. I used to love Rex Reed, but yeah. <laughs> I used to enjoy Rex Reed, but he got to be, I don't know. Well, he became a caricature of himself. He knew he was playing a role. And it became uh, it, the aesthetic became the reality, as it were. But again, that, that's a long story. If we want to get into all, well, long, long as we're name dropping people, you know Frank Rich, you know the yes. well, the well respected uh, bastard of film and theatrical criticism. <laughs> well, you know, I knew Frank Rich. He was a nice guy. And the funny thing is, I could have a conversation with Frank Rich, and he would often speak about things in such baser term. I was like, so why do you have to write like everything like a dissertation? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, look, no. you know, sometimes it depends on the audience. You know, I'll, I'll write differently for metal reviews than I will for the, the porn reviews for Vinegar Syndrome than I will for, you know, like a, an audio drama review for the, the British stuff. Oh, you, uh, your but, porn reviews are very, very well done. Yes, well, they are. You. And they're very adult. And they're very... Uh, I like your stuff a lot, uh, especially you know uh, uh, the ones that that I see when when they're posted because um, that's the way to write about. It. Actually, you know, it, it gives me impetus to write more about that kind of stuff because I, I like the way you write about that kind of stuff because that's the way that kind of stuff should be written about, well, not you. in an infantile <laughs> manner. Because right, because that's the thing. For, How are you going to write? When I was approached with this originally. I, I went to my wife and said, how the freak am I going to write about a porno? It's not like, you know, I'm not like one of these guys that's like, uh, we talked about last week about how Beretta, uh, no, or Beretta too, but um, I was thinking of Columbo. Always looked like the kind of guy that just got out of a peep so jerking off all over the walls. I mean, and you have people that will get really angry about some of my posts. Like somebody recently on the, one of the pages got really, really upset because of my recent review of Blue Ice, which I thought was hilarious. I'm like, wow, this guy's got his dick in his hand. I mean, <laughs> and it was because he was upset that I flagged some of his favorite adult film stars. But, you know, when, when I said that, I was like, well, how the hell am I going to approach this? Because I'm not going to write like that. I don't really care. You know, I'm married. I'm happily married. I got a hot wife. I don't need to worry about freaking pornos, you know, as funny as they are. Uh, but, you know, I do want to give them, you know, they sent this stuff to me, so I got to review it. And it turns out that there's actually some of the most fun reviews that I do because, first off, I can be brutally honest. You know, I don't have to pull any punches. And number two, uh, and believe it or not, some of the other things I do try to be nice. I don't really care about the pornos. <laughs> there's no reason to be nice there. Uh, but, you know, the other thing is that. 
basically you can just take it back and review it in terms of aesthetics, you know, the, the locales, the, the clothing, the period stuff. I mean, one of my favorite ones actually was one we just did the other day. Um, it's Carlos Tobolina's first movie, Infrasexum. And basically, it ends up being like I don't want for uh, Ray Dennis Steckler's Red Heat. It was the same thing. He's driving through Vegas, and I'm just like, you know, rattling off all the crap that's on the marquees. You know, all these like faded glamour from, you know, 1971 or whatever. That stuff is hilarious. It's got so much camp value to it. And the bad scripts and the bad acting. And, you know, it, it, that's, what, that's how you've got to approach these things. Unless you are, you know, five years old or have your dick in your hand. In which case, you're just like, oh, oh, oh yeah, this one makes me hot. Okay. And. What does that say about that? <laughs> and your taste isn't the same as everybody else's, so who cares? You know, you got offered right. it's great. Thanks. <laughs> but, but yes, thank you for that. Uh, the words of, um, uh, I want to say approbation, but it's the reverse of that. <laughs> words of encouragement. <laughs> uh, this was not planned. We don't script this stuff. We're just chatting here, like we would uh, when we meet up. Um, but Why anyway. those meetups last hours? <laughs> yes, they do. Well, you were complaining about that. I was like, yeah, next time instead of like just talking for five or six hours, people <laughs> do blank. Oh, no, no, I wasn't complaining. I wasn't complaining. No, 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 no. When it gets to be three o'clock in the morning, you know. <laughs> well, see, I'm a night out from way back, but yeah, uh, that's that's. I was telling my wife the other day, like, that's my idea of heaven. You know, get a couple drinks out there, some good friends, and let's just talk shit and you know talk about whatever you know deep things, and uh, I'm happy. So, <laughs> but anyway, we're going to we, we should have a notepad so in case we get ideas for other shows. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but then again, you know, you can always listen back to the uh, the podcast themselves and pick up stuff there. But uh, yeah, uh, we got way far afield of where we were going here. So, <laughs> Carpenter, so let's go with Carpenter. Yes, yes. Uh, so John Carpenter. I mean, I don't want to get too much into their past histories or whatever. But basically, he was a New Yorker, a New York stater, uh, like us, and he headed down with his family when he was pretty a young age to Kentucky. So basically, I always thought of him as a Southerner, as a Kentuckian. Um, and he, at one point, I guess, for whatever reason, uh, whether it was some kind of a military type thing or whether it was because he's trying to get away from his folks, I don't know. I don't remember the story. It's been years since I read his biographies and all that. Uh, he said, okay, I'm going to go up to become a film student at USC. And he didn't even finish. He didn't graduate officially. Uh, but at one point he basically jumped ship because he took some people he was in classes with, like Dan O'Bannon, who later became famous for things like Alien, uh, and I think one of the uh, Return of the Living Dead and things like that, uh, among other things. He was involved with a lot of stuff in the 80s, I guess. And, and an early Blood Time subscriber, too, Dan O'Bannon was. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, and he, they made this film together called Dark Star, which was kind of a knockoff spoof of 2001. I'd say crossed with a bit of Silent Running, which was a Bruce Dern film that was very trippy around that time. Um, and it's – I don't know what to think of it. I've seen it many times. Uh, I wound up getting it on like a Blu-ray because I got it for $4, and I still haven't sat there and watched it again. Uh, and I'm wondering if I even should have did that, even for the 4 bucks. Uh, it, it was a strange film. I remember getting not laughs out of it, but I remember being slightly entertained by it when I was young. And I wanted to see it again because I am a Carpenter fan, especially the films from this, the earlier period. Uh, but 
I don't have really good memories of it. I remember they had sort of a how, uh, like the computer on board that was sassing them the whole time. Instead of like you know directing them and you know being this sort of Nietzschean whatever, it, it was more like a joke. He was just making fun of them the whole time. It felt a little more like a Red Dwarf or something. Um, Daniel Bannon's actually in the cast, and otherwise it's just all his like you know uh, college schoolmates and pals. Uh, starring this thing, so you got a bunch of hippie types with beards and whatever, just kind of hanging around, smoking pot, and you know, floating around in space. I don't remember much about it. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I don't have a lot of positive memories of it either. So, did you want to uh, pitch on this one? I, yeah, I, yeah, we have to be on total agreement on this one because uh, there was like a beach ball type inflatable type monster at some point uh, that spoke. Um, so that was the thing that was going on there. Yeah, yeah, you had the college cronies. Um, it was a very druggy movie, but druggy yes. not in, a, you know, in the sense of, well, you know, like, Mondo, pot smoking. And um, <laughs> you, you got that sense. Um, and it was very affable, very laid back. Um, oh, yeah. The, the cardboard effects were done well. The costumes were done well. Uh some of the chintzy uh, stuff was better than you would find in the Luigi Cozzi space opera of the time. Yeah, that's true. So, so yeah, so that, that you know, they had some pluses to it. I mean, and, and the, the cast worked well. They were all friends. Yeah. Um, but um, I think in, uh, uh, how do I put this? I think the film got a better, uh, uh, better critical... <laughs> Yes, it got it has a better reputation than it deserves, but it also got more acclaim in hindsight. After he did some of his more well known films, people went back, Oh, what's this Dark Star? And you know, it actually got some screenings in the early eighties once they found out what it you know, it was his first film. Right. Uh but and we agree it's not yeah. The one thing I think might be in its favor beyond the fact that, like you said, it's affable. Uh, it's certainly laid back and it's watchable in its own strange way. Oh, yeah, uh, sure, yeah. It, it was a hell of a lot better than THX 1138. So <laughs> if you're going by comparison to that, wow, Dark Star's great, but, you know, uh, it really well, doesn't. THX 1138 is always, always for me, been a strange movie. I, I have no yeah. idea what he was trying to achieve. Uh, George Lucas and um, uh, unusual cast. Uh, 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 he pulled, you know. Again, the guy. If there's anything, and you got to give Lucas credit. Star Wars is, you know, it's still good. The first one, at least, and uh, well, parts of America. Really yeah, yeah. I mean, is it, some of his early stuff is good, but that thing is mystery to me. <laughs> But, and but again, show all the on, time. <laughs> yeah, but on 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 a, a minuscule budget, though, he did he did do wonders with that dystopian vision of the future. But anyway, again, that's going far afield. I'm just saying that by comparison, I think Dark Star is the much yes. better student film. Um, so but he moved on now. Next film. Yeah. Carpenter broke through almost immediately, which is really bizarre. All right, he does this one student film. Two years later, he does a film that. Is still ranked. I mean, for those who are in the know, among one of his best, it's certainly one of my favorites. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13, 1976. Uh, it is just ostensibly leave, leave Carpenter alone. Forget about the whole deal. 
it is one of the greatest and most claustrophobic cop films ever made, and it's a clear precursor to one of Carpenter's later films, which is Prince of Darkness, in the respect of folks being trapped in a very public place with what should be a really busy city around them. Instead, it turns out to be very isolated and filled with menace. It's probably one of the best siege films ever made. Uh, I love this freaking film. Uh, you've got Austin Stoker, who uh, what was he in one of those cop shows? I, I always think Mission Impossible. That wasn't that was Greg Morris. Um, Actually, Austin Stoker did. The, uh, Austin Stoker was in. I hope everybody's sitting down. The short-lived Planet of the Apes TV series, because really? he was in Battle of the Planet of the Apes, the worst of the Planet of the Apes movies. <laughs> True. Um. Let's see who else is in there. Uh, Lori Zimmer is the lead. She's kind of a nobody. Charles Cyphers is in this, who pops up in a lot of stuff, you know, character actor. Uh, Nancy Loomis, again, nobody. Uh, John Carpenter himself is in there as a gang member, just because he realized that he right. looked like CD enough. The hippie. real surprise in this is the lead. You remember yes. the, with the, this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember how his name was, but uh, it is a really freaking good film. Basically, they're in South Central LA, right? Uh, years before that became a, a catchword for rappers and you know the LA riots and all that bullshit that happened later on. Uh, this local gang steals a cache of assault weapons, right? So the cops go and kill a bunch of them during this. You know they, they're going to bust them, but instead of that, okay, that's the end of it. The gang says, okay, we're going to take vengeance, and what they do is. Uh, this lieutenant, who's also Stoker, ends up, uh, he gets like the shit dude. He's like, okay, here, uh, this precinct house over here in South Central, we're going to decommission this thing. I was going to abandon it and move on and maybe sell the land or whatever. Um, and for the last couple of hours before they finally close it down, you just be in charge of this and everybody's going to be moving their stuff out and whatever else, a couple of people packing it. There's like a skeleton crew there. Uh, so, oh, that's the guy's name, Henry Brandon, the, the uh, sergeant, uh, and the two secretaries, who are those people I mentioned before, Zimmer and Loomis. And what happens is, as you might expect, uh, as the sun goes down, the gang moves in, and these people are all trapped in there. I mean, yeah, they've got a cache of stuff themselves, but it's not the same. And there are periods where the guys get in, and there's always, are they coming through the windows? Are they coming through the sewers? Can we get out this way? Can we get out that way? It really gets, from a very simplistic, basic plot, it becomes very, very intense. And this is where you can see, uh, like I mentioned, his very unlikely influences. Here's a guy that does – okay, he, he's very varied, as you'll see, but he's basically known for horror, sci-fi, and a couple of you know almost dystopian action films, uh, futuristic or not. Um, and who's he copying from? He's copying from John Ford and Howard Hawks, uh, not only two of our greatest American Western directors, but in terms of Hawks, you have a guy that was known for things that were very uh, talky. That, that was his big innovation. He would have people talk realistically. People didn't wait for each other to finish. They would talk over each other to make their point, like in The Thing, for example, was one of his. And another one, uh, His Girl Friday, I think it was, with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. Uh, he was very much known for snappy dialogue and realism. And this is where you see that influence is coming from because the John Ford sort of a thing is like, okay, well, yeah, I could see the searchers in this and maybe even stagecoach. Uh, and you get to, you know, Hawks and it's like, okay, yeah, I can see the way he's handling dialogue. I can see the way that he is staging this sort of apocalyptic um, 
standoff, if you will, in an isolated location, just like the thing. Uh, so already his influences are really on his sleeve, and that's something that doesn't change with Carpenter. Uh, it's actually he's syncretized the best of these two directors who are you know among America's most famous, if not best, uh, and one up them, you know, made them better, made it his own. So, uh, what did you want to say about this one? Okay, yeah, I, I looked up the guy's name because I should know this, but Darwin Johnston, I know, I know. He played Napoleon Wilson, and he, he's our de facto hero in Assault on Precinct 13. He's a... Uh, oh, is he the crook that was there? Yeah. Yeah, he's the white... What we thought, what we thought originally, what we think is the white trash kind of thuggy guy with the mysterious past... Yeah, um, winds up, uh, you know, uh, teaming with Austin Stoker. Who, who right, because he's trapped in the house, house, right? Or, or yeah, he's house. trapped he's... in the uh, precinct. And the guy, is, the guy comes out of nowhere. He had, he, he did one or two roles before this, as far as I can tell. He might have done stage, who knows? But he he didn't do much after this. And this is like, this is the part for the guy. I mean, you know, they always say some people have like a part. This is it. This is the role of his life. And the guy is amazing in this. He's like, you gotta smoke. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing in this. And yeah, I agree with you on this too. You know, uh John Ford, Howard Hawks are definite. I mean they're they're not even on the sleeve. These influences are thick in the air. Also, John Carpenter did some major uh for nineteen seventy six some major fucking with the audience because the ice cream truck scene it's really, yes, yes. Uh, that's pretty damn intense really? for something in 1976. Uh, yeah. Because, well, I don't know if I want give it away or not, but th- there is something that you would not expect. Even nowadays, it'd probably be fairly, if not taboo, then like, oh my god, you know, really screwing with the audience. And there it was. Actually, you know who else did something like this even earlier was a serial known as Daredevils of the Red Circle, which is actually one of my favorites. Uh, something you would not expect to happen to a certain character happens right away in the first episode. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> really? This is 1940-whatever-the-hell-it-was-three? Like, this is happening? So here it was in 76. And it's still, uh, I mean, to this day, but even then it was like, wow, I can't believe he did that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's still jarring, and, and some of the siege scenes, because this isn't a movie about a siege that happens, it's over with, it's done. No, it gets mm. progressively And I Worse. guess, here's where the, uh, the uh, for lack of a better word, the supernatural overtones start coming into the seeping into this movie, when, um, for me at least, when there's there's a lull. There are lulls in the violence. Yes. And, and uh, you know, not only does it give moments for your characters to interact with each other and figure out what the hell they're going to do, how they're going to get out of this, and bicker and bitch, as, you know, just like a Western. Um, but um, then he amps up the violence. So what you saw yes. previous, so by the time, and I have to say, for a low-budget movie, the ending of this movie is, is nearly exhilarating. Yeah. And so many people who want to make and I'm putting this in quotations, an action movie should really look at this. And this was remade not too long ago. Badly. (laughs) Badly, I would say it's passable. Um, You know, Carpenter got some money off the deal, I'm sure. Uh, I would like to have seen John Carpenter remake this movie, but um, 
that was I don't know what it was. Um, I guess the fervor got caught up with us. Let's remake this one. Okay, cool. And it's like, well, this is odd. <laughs> Jazz cast choice. And then it disappeared off the face of the earth. I saw it. I thought it was passable. It wasn't horrible. But well, when I'm slagging it, I'm comparing it to the original. So you're right. I mean, as a standalone film, if this film didn't exist and this guy actually invented that plot, which is totally unrealistic, I'm like, okay, you know, for a film of its era, it's not that bad. But, you know, compared to this, it's like uh, flies on a turd. So. <laughs> So, there is uh, a TV movie, a TV movie that he threw in right after this. Yes, uh, The Eyes of Laura Morris. He actually didn't direct this one. He was only the writer on it. Uh, and it, like you said, it was a TV movie. I think it was on Channel 7 or something. I remember seeing it when it came out uh, as a child. Oh, oh no, you're, you're thinking of – no, I was thinking of Someone's Watching Me. Oh, okay. You're right. Yeah. That's there too. Uh, that one, I don't even remember that well, but I think I saw it around the time it came out. Uh, but go ahead. It's actually very similar to The Eyes of Laura Mars, which Carpenter had contributed to, but he didn't direct that. Um, right. But Someone's Watching Me is was sort of like the TV version of that, pretty much. Yeah. It's edgy. Yeah, it's TV. It's 1978, I believe, so it's edgy yep. TV. And... Um, um, a stalker, and then you know this is like early on when the the was much discussed over all these shows we've done, where the the giallos and the Italian thrillers start to uh, influence American filmmakers, and we began and, to have the know, slashers. We had began to have the slashers. This was like one of your early American television slasher films. It was yeah, and- okay. And you've got to realize, too, that in terms of slashers in this country, or anywhere, really, uh, once you get past the Jalo, there really wasn't much. I mean, you had Black Christmas, uh, but what else happened until you start getting into, you know, around this time? I mean, there's a couple of things, you know, maybe Savage Weekend, uh, but it's pretty thin on the ground until you hit, you know, like I said, this serialized Laura Mars, uh, this telefilm that was basically the same thing over again, you're right. That's actually the one I remember seeing, and it was re- reversed. Uh, Lives of Laura Mars had a nice poster, though. Uh, I remember seeing it on buses passing by all the time. Uh, but since it's the same freaking plot, you couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> and, then, then, and then you, you then followed, get you followed it with... With yeah. the one that really kicked off the slasher boom. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, there was one or two floating around there. It wasn't a totally new idea, but he came up with this idea of the babysitter murders. They figured it was going to be nice and easy. Uh, him and his co-producer, Deborah Hill, uh, they wrote this story that was, again, like we were going to mention with the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, strangely bloodless uh, for the most part. I mean, it's, it's not what you expect what came later with the slasher films, uh, and not even what was previously done with Jalos, which could be pretty damn gory and in your face. Mm. Um, but something about the way that he filmed it, which was pretty expert, uh, it, it's almost like, you know, when you're watching Hitchcock's Psycho and you think there's a lot more going on than is, uh, the same thing. This movie was intense, and it spawned an entire genre that would last throughout the 80s. And sometimes, if you want to keep going, okay, it went a little bit into the 90s. You had that stupid revival with Scream and all that stuff. Uh, you know, God knows what people think nowadays, you know, a torture porn thing, who knows. But at that point, it was a real kickoff. And it, the name that people know it by these days is not the Babysitter Murders, but Halloween. Um 
really it's it's really big on suggestion, like I mentioned. Uh, you think there's a lot more going down than there really is. Uh, Donald Pleasance, you know, he always did quirky roles. I always enjoy him in anything I've seen him in. But, you know, Dr. Loomis may be, if not one of his best roles, and certainly the one that most people associate him with, this lunatic doctor, basically. You know, who's crazier, this uh, psychologist from the mental hospital or, you know, Michael Myers himself? Um, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis... I'm not a big fan, but I did enjoy her in her three or four horror films she did, which this is one, and the first one, I believe. Um, not a big fan. No, I'm really not. I, I mean, I don't hate her, but I don't particularly like her outside of her horror films. Uh, she's not like nothing to me. Everybody says True Lies. I'm like, yeah, she walked around that little slinky mini dress, and okay. So she's got a nice rack on her butt. Okay, that's cute, but she still looks like, uh, I'm sorry, a butch lesbian with that haircut. Oh, yes, I had this conversation. I remember this. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, she has to grow her fucking hair out and put some makeup on. I'm sorry. Uh, but, uh, you know, she looks like Rachel Maddow. Uh, I do. Those of, you, see, there you go. Those of you who are hot watching MSNBC every night, I'm sure you're Jamie Lee Curtis fans. Uh, I liked her in this. I liked her in The Fog. Uh, there was one other thing she did, uh, and another Halloween, of course, uh, and that was pretty much it. After that, I'm like, yeah, whatever, Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, but I did have a friend, actually, uh, rival guitarist, who I've done some jams with. Like you've probably heard if you listened to And I Level a year or so back. Uh, recently, we reconnected with him. Uh, he used to have rival bands back in the day. And... He was so totally hot for her, and that actually made us question him, like, hmm, does he, like, swing a certain way or something? She's so butch. <laughs> she looks like a boy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, enough about her. I, I, uh, I, I was totally hot for her, too, so don't go there. <laughs> hey, you never know. Uh, you know, we're the same age, too, you know, and then, and then, and then one day, one day, I, I saw she was doing... A commercial for stuff that, that old people have on cable. I was like, Isn't hi, I'm Jamie Lee Curtis. Do you suffer? I'm like, no. When people so. you grew up with and that you used to be hot for or used to you know, really look look up to are now either dead or doing like those like uh, diabetes commercials or, you know, here's for yeah. you know, suppositories. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Uh, Charles Cypher's in again, another you know, good player. Uh, he's the sheriff this time. PJ Souls basically built a career out of this and her appearance in uh, Rock and Roll High School. I don't think she did another damn thing in her life, but somehow everybody knows PJ Souls. She's made a convention circuit out of this. You know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's a really good movie. And looking back, it is shocking that there really isn't much blood at all. It's not that. Uh, intense in terms of, oh, look, here's a guy with a big knife and he's going to stab somebody. Yeah, but you don't see anything. He cuts away and you never even see the attempt. You know, it's like the the scariest it gets is him standing there in the hallway with the, the, um, you know, the the sheet like Charlie Brown over his head with the glasses and the knife, or when, you know, the tombstone is over the girl's head in the bed with the pumpkins. I mean, it's more suggestion than it is uh, shoved in your face. It's, It's more of a true... Uh, horror film as opposed to a gross-out. So, you know, like the, the argument of what's what's horror, what's terror, that kind of thing. I don't always agree with the way they define that. 
but there's a difference between psychological horror, which is like more of a uh, feeling and an atmosphere, more of like a Euro horror kind of a thing, and gross-out horror, which is just blood and guts. And here, I'm going to pull your intestines out and show it to you, and that's going to freak you out because it's disgusting. Uh, that This is not that. It's more of the former, and that's why it is a much faded uh, and deservedly so uh, film in American history after all these years. So uh, your turn. <laughs> what do you want to say? <laughs> Oh, man, I fell in love with Jamie Lee Curtis with this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, hey, whatever. It's his own. <laughs> no, she's actually, actually it was, she, she's young in this, and she's not really, uh, you know, reached her apex of, of womanlyhood. Uh, I really, I really like Jamie <laughs> Lee Curtis. I know, because she was the, the very, she was, she was not the bimbo. She was not, you know, I'm talking about her acting and her role. She was not the bimbo. She was not the uh, the slut. She she actually her part was pretty well done. She was like the intelligent girl. You know, she was surrounded by bimbos and sluts. Yes. And uh, I thought that was really interesting that he did that that way. Um, you're right. It's pretty bloodless. There's some, but it's pretty bloodless. I think the thing is the editing. But the thing that you didn't mention was the music. Oh yes, yes. And, Carpenter. And, and that, yeah. I should jump in for one second here because Carpenter is known for this. I actually, you know, usually I'm, I'm a big soundtrack collector from movies from the 60s and 70s. You know, I'm a huge fan of Morricone and Emiliani and all these people. Uh, did the Angelus Brothers, uh, you know, Resort Alani. I mean, I've, I've got like soundtrack after soundtrack. I collected them for years. And yet, when it comes to films afterwards, or especially American films, which are all like, you know, crap like John Williams and Danny Elfman, God help you. Uh, <laughs> John Carpenter's films are the only ones I have soundtracks for, and basically it's just him doing these things on a, key, on a Casio keyboard. Uh, very simplistic, but ritualistic. Um, what do you want to call it? Uh, but he also also worked chant. with Alan Howarth worked with him after yes. a while. You're correct. And, 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 and I'm sorry that's, that's one show that you didn't make because I actually talked Alan Haworth to actually to let me sit down with him for like 45 minutes uh, in a room full of people. And uh, he was just, we talked about this, you know, how he came up with this stuff with John Carpenter and alone. Because after a while, Carpenter was too busy. He would just have Alan right. Haworth do these scores, which were just like what John Carpenter came up with. Right. I still think Carpenters were better. I'll say that, but you're right. He, you're correct. He, they were similar. They were definitely in the same line, and they were certainly more than respectable. You know, most people probably can't even tell the difference. Uh, and actually, they probably might have been a little more musical. But you know, nonetheless, uh, the atmospherics of it. You get something like The Fog. You get something like Halloween. You get something like Escape from New York. Uh, these soundtracks are like practically iconic. I mean, you have you know death metal bands and things like that doing bits from Halloween or you know Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, things like that, as like openings to concerts or as you know starting off a song. Like here, I can do this little instrumental before you uh, get you in a creepy mood before we kick off. Uh, really, really good, intense stuff. But you know, simplistic. He didn't put a lot of thought into it and effort. It was just kind of like, okay, here's some basic... Uh, I think he did it originally just because he didn't have money for soundtracks, uh, but it well, works. Well, very, very effective. Yeah, they're very effective, and I think that, in a way, Carpenter probably may have been influenced by Tangerine Dream, Circa Phaedra. Yes, yes. And um, actually... My two favorite albums are theirs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. That's why I mentioned them. 
And Carpenter and, and, and Tangerine Dream are a big influence on stuff I do personally when I have my alone time on a keyboard, which is this kind of music, actually. You know, my wife noticed that because I actually have a couple of keyboards we got from garage sales. I'm not a keyboard player. I'm a guitarist and just you know basically messing around with the bass lately, trying to learn that like a real bass player as opposed to a guitarist playing bass. Um, but I have these keyboards, and when I do mess around with them or on a piano, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of stuff in like you know fourths and fifths, uh, usually in minor keys, kind of like a John Carpenter sort of a thing. You know, simplistic. Uh, who knew that? See, yeah, we both do that then. Wow, see, we both do this. Yep. My wife actually loves that because it's like relaxes her. <laughs> so, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes is... if I'm in the mood, I can go on for like two hours. And yep, that's what happens. Change. I'll put myself to sleep. That's the best part if I go on long enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. Just oh, yeah. I, yeah, we digress. Uh, no, no. Halloween is a magnificent debut. Um, um a shocker for sure. It made money. I, he did it for. Uh, he he did. It was a low budget film. He did it for uh, an indie and a sketchy distributor and producer, which actually came back to buy him later on. Uh, Mustafa Akkad. Uh, yep. Um, because they were able to make I don't know Halloween thirty six or forty two or whatever. It was a um, lot of money amidst, Yeah, yeah. Amidst the, the many Halloween sequels, I uh, I did like two a lot, which two uh, was Tommy fantastic. Lee Wallace. Yeah, Tommy Lee Wallace directed, but you could feel well, the end of John Carpenter on that. Yeah, we'll we'll get there because yeah, there's a story behind that. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and three, of course. But again, it's another story. Three is completely different, and, but uh, I love it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love it too, and and. Uh, and I think I did not like or appreciate any of them till I saw H2O, which, again, it wasn't Carpenter. And yeah. this was uh, 2000, whenever that was. But, yes, this is this is a, a great film, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And we get nitpick on this, but we want to get to some of his other work. Yeah. I actually liked uh, the two Halloweens, I think it was right after. The two that were conjoined. The, with the story of the baby girl that grows up, and uh, and I think in the second one, either she or the lead is pretty hot. Somebody like, you know, Rainbow, what's her name? She only did a couple of films, I forget. Uh, but I remember I was really into her, whoever the hell her name was. It's been a while. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they weren't great films, especially by comparison to what came before. Uh, but one thing that you mentioned about Halloween is that, you know, how you like the thing of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis being the... Um, Basically intelligent, not a bimbo one with all the ones surrounding her, basically. You know, they're all 70s party girls, you know, smoke some joints, screw uh, some boyfriend or whatever the hell, and, you know, what, talk about it the next day and then go for another guy and another joint. Uh, but, uh, that's what the, the thing, 70s were like. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, the problem was that is it actually did, because the film was so influential, start what became a really tired and neocon uh, trope of the slasher film, which was the final girl. And it was always like 
don't dare do drugs or have sex because then you're going to get killed by the slasher or whatever. And, you know, of course, the other thing that everybody always laughs about is don't be black because you notice all the black characters get killed off right away. But, you know, uh, the girl that's like the virgin, whatever, she's usually the most boring one that you would touch with a football anyway, uh, ends up surviving because she's still, you know, in the realm of, uh, you know, she didn't offend the conservative gods that be. (laughs) So it's really kind of, it becomes a stupid thing, but in this case, it was the first of its kind, more or less. So, yeah. Uh, and Jamie Lee Curtis was decent in the, the role, so therefore, it's a lot more forgivable. She, she's more believable as an intelligent person, let's put it that way. Um, so, after this, he does a TV movie again. And he actually does a biopic of Elvis Presley. It was just called Elvis. Uh, I remember seeing it on TV. I do not like it, even at the time, and I'm a huge Elvis fan. Uh Kurt Russell did a fair job as Elvis. There's no question about that. Uh, Shelley Winters played Gladys Presley, which if you ever saw pictures of Gladys and you know how attached Elvis was to his mama, yeah, it works. Um, Season Hubley was a strange choice to play Priscilla Presley. I don't know that that worked. Uh, Ed Begley Jr. was in there as DJ Fontana, who was one of his uh, more regular collaborators on the music side. Uh, I think it was his guitarist or whatever. Uh, but, you know, again, it's a biopic. It's made for TV. It was a miniseries, I believe, because I know it was long. It was like three and a half hours, five hours, something like that. Um, but I don't really have fond memories of it. So is there anything you wanted to say about it? Uh, well, you know, Kurt Russell, who who previously was well-known for Disney. You know, yes. Disney teen, Disney adolescent, Disney young man. Um, I think he was surprisingly good in this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, John Carpenter, like, what the fuck? But uh, it, it, it actually was, was not too bad. Uh, it's probably, I hate to say it, I'm not big on bio movies. I, I, I think my favorite bio movie uh, for musicians is I Walk the Line. I like that I, I one. That, that was good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really good. It's one of my current favorites, as far as not a concert movie, but a bio picture. Right. Um, but I thought this was really good. Um, what he was doing with this carpenter, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, <clears throat> but it also actually this was also like a, in a way though, it's the tipping point. It's Carpenter and Kurt Russell getting together. For, yep. I guess the first time. And and growing a, a organic friendship that will last till this day, and right. it actually got them through a couple of really good movies and a couple of suspect pictures too. Yes, and very shortly Russell and Hudley will reappear in a much better film. So, uh, but next up was one of my favorite John Carpenter films. I know a lot of people for some reason there's like a, a retcon thing where people are starting to slag it. Uh, I remember growing up, everybody loved it, and I certainly loved it to death, and I still do. Uh, which is the fog. Um, actually, if you're going by if you're going by John Carpenter films, with possibly Assault on Precinct 13 aside, uh, the only one I like as much as the fog or close to it is Prince of Darkness, which everybody hates. So we'll get to that when we get there. Uh, but it has a fantastic cast. There's no question about that. Very intense atmosphere, which is what really makes it for me. Uh, once again, there's a strong sense of isolation, and it's probably the best of that sort of – there's like a subgenre that was big in the late 70s, early 80s of like rural or small-town horrors. Um, 
you know, I think it was the hippies going cross country and they started finding, you know, they everybody wanted to find America back in those days and find themselves. And unfortunately, when they went out into the Midwest or down south, they found a lot of people that didn't like them hippies coming through their town there. You anti-government commie with your long faggot hair and all that shit. So, you know, we got a lot of true-to-life dystopian things out of it. Sometimes they went straight into horror territory where it's like, you know, uh, the, the satanic peril thing that was going on at the time, you know, race of the devil and brotherhood of Satan and things like that. And other times it was more straightforward, like deliverance. Uh, or what was that stupid slasher about? It was the rituals, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, but in this case, the fog is just really. Uh, it reminded me of the children. If the children was done more correctly, <laughs> it was a better film. As uh, much as I love the children, um, this film is actually. We were talking about Curtis before. This is probably the only time I actually found her vaguely sexy. Uh, because of the way she, she, the role that she took in this, and the way she played it, uh, and it was the only time that I ever found Adrian Barbeau, who was Carpenter's wife at the time, even vaguely sympathetic. <laughs> so it says a lot about the film, uh, as opposed to the people involved. Uh, obviously, Barbeau's in it. Uh, she's like a uh, radio DJ uh, that gets trapped up in this lighthouse uh, through the whole thing, and you know, there's just panic because her kids at home with their grandmother, and the, the ghosts are coming through the fog and trying to kill them. Uh, just like everybody else in town. Uh, Jamie Lee is basically a uh, free-spirited, free-love hitchhiker, uh, which is why I liked her so much in this. Janet Lee, her mother's in this one. So it predates uh, Halloween H2O by uh, a good decade or two. Um, yeah, she's playing her mother, too. Yes, yes. And also the mayor of the mm-hmm. town, I think, wasn't she? She was looking at a big wig with the town parade. Mm-hmm. Um John Houseman's in it, which is a strange choice, but it worked very well. He had a very resonant delivery when he was telling the, the tale of uh, how this plague ship was uh, sunk in, and you know, basically it was almost like uh, the story of the uh, the Indians, how we gave them like you know, blankets full of smallpox for Manhattan Island or whatever. Uh, same kind of a deal. They screwed these people over, these religious people, and uh, they all basically died of plague out there in this boat, and then they get, they burned them alive and whatever, and then they came back as ghosts, eventual ghosts. Uh, Tom Atkins is in this, uh, who's usually pretty good as character actor. Charles Cyphers again, Nancy Loomis again. Hal Holbrook's in it, and you know, okay, yes, he's drunk as usual, but he did a good job. I mean, I found him very believable in this one. I'll oh, as a, as a priest, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, as a fallen priest, if you will, a priest who has lots of doubts, uh, which is the best kind of priest you actually have. Um, George Buck Flower, who was a uh, longtime favorite, that shows up all the way through things like Sorority Bays and the Slimeball Bolarama as uh, C.D. LaFleur. Uh, you know, he's in this thing, so that says something. Rob Bottin, who did a lot of uh, special effects at the time, he was kind of like the number two effects whiz after Savini back then, uh, and or maybe the number three, but he was a big deal. And this was probably the first of his Carpenter collaborations. He pops up in it, um, and Carpenter himself pops up in it once again. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it without really digging into it. So, is there anything you wanted to uh, touch on here? Well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Adrian, Bar- yeah, they had a short-lived romance and marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. Adrian Barbeau, who I interviewed once, uh, is really tiny. She's petite. Really, and, and I never realized. Yeah, she's really petite, and it's really funny. Well, I'm six four, but still. <laughs> But still, standing next to her, she's, you know, I always thought she was like this big Amazonian woman with a huge yes. bust. Well, that's her personality, just, yes. <laughs> right, you know, she's this very sweet, petite woman with a huge bust. And, uh, <laughs> My folks um, used to call her Boob Bo, so you get the idea. <laughs> she's, she's very sweet. She's very good in this because, 
I think almost everything I've ever seen in beside television, of course, every, everything I've ever seen her do in the TV, uh, feature work, she's always pushed a little bit of aggression because small women tend to do that. They push yes. the aggression to make up for the fact that they're tiny. And uh, it's a good movie. Around this time, I started making my many trips to Maine. I used to go to Maine for like two-week vacations, to August, September, for many years. And the people are creepy. The land is creepy. I love it. Uh, yep. I, I was actually going to relocate there. And it's funny, when I saw the fog, I was like, oh, my God, this reminds me of Maine. And yep. actually, every time I see the fog, it reminds me of New England. I'm like, off <laughs> or north. New it is true. It's it wasn't very New England. Yeah, yeah, it's not like a George Bush's New England, which is like kind of bunkport. It's like five minutes <laughs> no. over the thing, you're in there. It's kind of bunkport. Now we're talking about like two hours from like where Maine ends and like Nova Scotia begins that far up. And uh, I've seen lots of places like this. So the town reminded me of that, and and the area and the lighthouse is a great effect. It's a great location. Um, I weirdly enough. I shot this in Northern California, but it was supposed to be New England. And the funny thing was, I didn't get to Northern California till about uh, six years ago, seven years ago. And then I found, oh my God, Northern California is a triptych of New England. It's the <laughs> same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I could I could see why they chose that because everybody's pretty much LA based, I guess you know and. Uh, and that's so, uh, you're exactly right about Barbo though. That's why I never really liked her. This was the closest she ever came to being a sympathetic character for me because she was so aggro. I mean, I was just like, oh my god. Um, you know, those of you who were around during that time, it was kind of like the early '90s with the whole Lilith Fair thing going down. Uh, the second wave feminists at that time were not just fighting for their own rights and their own bodies and all that stuff, which is all fine, uh, but. They were very, very aggro, uh, and they were very – there was a tendency to be super anti-male. Like you, everything you did, you were wrong because you were a guy, and that's the vibe I always got off of her. I'm like, why the fuck was John Carpenter married to this woman? <laughs> you know, why do I have to watch wow. her? But in this film, it's like, you know, okay, I can understand her character at least, and she's like, all right, I don't mind her here. <laughs> So uh, anything else you want to say before we move on to the next one? No, let's go. All right. So next up is actually another good one, actually a lot of people's favorite, uh, Escape from New York. Uh, it's actually one of another of his best films. It's a futuristic dystopia thing that inspired films like you know The Bronx Warriors, After the Fall of New York, New Crime City, Los Angeles 2020. I mean, there's dozens Max, of these things. Maybe? Ad Max, maybe. Yeah. I mean. Dozens of these things all across Italy, Europe, America. I mean, it basically set the template. Once again, he's, well, he's already done this with Halloween. Now here he does it again with his gift in New York. Uh, a really good cast. You know, Kurt Russell again. Uh, this is kind of one of his defining roles, to be honest with you. Uh, as silly as it is, as comic booky as it can be. Um, and it is basically a live-action comic book. Uh, Lee Van Cleef is in it. You know, he's already been through his Western phase. Uh, he's kind of fallen. He hasn't quite gotten to the cheese of the master yet, uh, but he's getting there. And he had just done The Octagon with Chuck Norris. So he's kind of carrying that over to here, uh, but even though he's a little bit more 
the villain, I guess, uh, than he usually is. As much as he comes off like you think he's the villain, he's usually basically got either a heart of gold or he's on the side of the angels. Here it's like, yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> Ernest Borgnine's in it uh, with a funny kind of a character player role. I really liked him in this one. Uh, Donald Pleasance is in it, uh, not doing too much. He's kind of the kidnapped president, the, the MacGuffin that starts this whole thing off. Isaac Hayes is in it. We had mentioned him previously when we were doing the Black Exploitation show, and you had said, which was actually accurate, that this role was not him at his best, and it really isn't. Um, if you want to see Isaac really doing shit, other than, you know, obviously his music, something like Spot Stacks, uh, you should go see Truck Turner. That's a really good one. Uh, watching him here, all right, you know, he's there. He's iconic for who he is in this role, but I don't know. It's just kind of, you know, Duke of New York, all right, fine, whatever, you know. Basically, yeah, he's like, I, I, uh, you know, he reminds me of I, uh, President Camacho from Idiocracy. That, that's basically what he is. <laughs> Yeah, movie. it's a, it's 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 probably one of the miscast roles. Uh, I I I'm not sure if they were going for somebody else and they ended up going that way or uh, whatever. But it's the one that does that rings false in this movie, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, and then you've got uh, let's see, Harry Dean Stanton pops up as the brain. Uh, that's actually his nickname, uh, and it works. Uh, Barbeau's in it again, eh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Tom Atkins again, Charles Cyphers again. Susan Hubley is in it. This is probably her best role. Uh, she's basically, I think the actual name that they give her as the character in the casting is the girl in the chock full of nuts. Because remember, uh, those of you who were around at the time, chock full of nuts not only was a popular instant coffee that you could get, but they actually had stores. Uh, like you know, uh, almost like a coffee shop, like a Starbucks, I guess. Yeah. And that's where that. he encounters her. And she was basically a hooker with the thing—a hooker with a heart of gold, uh, who knew how to fight. And well, see, I see, really think this is her best was, role. Was was uh, the girlfriend of uh, maybe she married him too, Kurt Russell, and they had a brief thing yes. for a short period of time. So but, there was a bit of stuff going on there. Apparently, exactly. like her career totally derailed into like. Too many drugs, Bill? But, yes. Uh, but at this point, and that, that's probably right, but you're saying about the dynamic, because it plays into it. You can see it. There, there is sparks going on there. There is some sort of a push and pull going on that you wouldn't normally get from her. You certainly don't see it in something like Catch My Soul, which I just saw her in recently, uh, you know, with Richie Havens. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis is actually the narrator in the beginning. So you don't see her on film at all, but you just as a favorite of John, uh, she, because she did a couple films already, she did the opening narration here. Really, really good film, but of all of his films in this period, as much as I love it to death, and I do, uh, and I always did, it's very comic book, which, you know, considering the, the post-apocalyptic uh, genre that it, it, if not kicked off, then certainly was a major, major early uh, impetus for, you know, they all are kind of cartoony. So uh, this is definitely one of the best ones of that, if not the best. So is there anything else you want to say about this before we move on to the next one? Well, it's, it's a granddaddy of post-apocalyptic movies. Yes. The problem is, <coughs> pardon me, the problem is, he, he over he's trying to achieve with what he has, so he overachieves. You know, uh, um, it's taught. You know, it's 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 you know it's less than a hundred minutes long. So the, the 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 soundtrack is magnificent. I mean, it's just very percussive. Um, <laughs> the though synth driven. Go figure that one out. 
Yes. Um, uh, and everything you said is correct. Yeah, yeah, and like we, you know, like we 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 mentioned previous, the ICK's is this cat, uh, and though cast in this film as the Duke of New York, the A one number one, he, <laughs> he's not right for the part, and and uh, he's not up to the part either. Yeah, and. Um, mm-hmm. Donald Pleasance is weirdly cast as the President of the United States. I could have thought of many, many homegrown U.S.-type actors that could have done this part maybe better. We all love Donald Pleasance. Who doesn't like oh, Donald yeah. Pleasance? But does he I think fit they have role? Good... Yeah, right. They had such a good relationship on the first two Halloween pictures. You know, let's put them in this. But at the same time, it's weird. It takes you out of the movie. Lee Van Cleef. We all love Lee Van Who doesn't like Lee Van Cleef, right? Right. Um, strange choice uh, yeah. for um, a very aggro, possibly helpful, poss- definitely duplicitous yes. um, um, security guy, agent, uh, master of all evil, <laughs> Very interesting, you know. Actually, the one thing I liked about Lee's portrayal in this is that he knew what he was working with, and he tried to actually color his part and his line readings with certain things. So it wasn't just like Lee Van Cleef doing a late in his career throwaway movie. So he he was good. He was better than his material in some points. Yes, and I liked that. Of he course, definitely- Kurt Russell. Yes, please. He, he definitely threw some digs in there that you can interpret a couple ways. One, that these two have had some history. Uh, and number two, there's something going on there that says, you know, father figure fighting with son or even arguably, and this is a bit of a stretch, but homoerotic. I mean, there was something going on between these two that was not um, – I won't say not in the script, but that didn't have to be there. That is very, very present in their, especially in Lee Van Cleef's line readings and delivery. So, yeah, he, he definitely threw something in there that was purposeful. I mean, and and, and we all know that, uh, I don't know whether he was instructed to do so or whatever, but uh, 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 Kurt Russell actually stole all, all his line deliveries from Clint Eastwood and the yes. vocal intonations, whatever. And you know what? He pulled it off. Uh, I have to say that. It's just like it's it's a weird movie. Yes, you you definitely said it correctly and and, and you know eloquently. It's we wished it was better, but for what it was, this time period, the budget they had to work with, it's still it's a classic in a way. It's like it can't yeah. be not a classic. It's just like if it was, was just a little better, this could have been like the one, you know. But it's still good. Yeah. It, it definitely plays into the same ballpark as Assault on Precinct 13. It's just yes. so comic book that it is, while it is one of Carpenter's best, it is a great film. It's one of the best, if not the best, of the post-apocalyptic films that came after it. Uh, it's still lacking because it's so cheesy. It feels like a movie nowadays, you know, like one of these comic book movies in that respect. So anyway, right. um, moving on from that one, uh, Halloween 2. You know, like you mentioned, Rick Rosenthal did the actual direction, but 
they weren't happy with the way it came out. Carpenter himself was very upset with it. So he stepped in and did a whole bunch of reshoots uncredited. So how much of this is Rosenthal's? How much of this is Carpenter's? Has been debated back and forth. Carpenter admits to a lot of it. Uh, you know, who are you going to take the word of on this? Who the hell knows? But I will say that parts of it feel odd. Like, okay, that didn't really work. Why is that there? And then other parts of it are dead on. It is the best by far of the hospital horrors, uh, you know, which was a sort of a, a limited subgenre within the slasher uh, genre. Uh, mm. Very, very good. Very, very dark. Uh, you know, if you weren't already freaked out by hospitals, this will really give you the creeps. Uh, very effective. The abandoned sense, you know, of nighttime. Once again, he loves isolation. He's very good with this. Uh, someplace that you think is public, but is really desperately removed from any source of help. Uh, and Michael Myers kind of creeping around, not just through the parking lot scene, which is the most effective one, and through the hallways, the darkened corridors of the, the hospital itself in the middle of the night. But, you know, when he's coming through in the basement, attacking the orderlies, and the, the nurses going down there to screw in the hot tub and whatever the hell else, I mean, it's like, whoa, what the hell is this? It really is a freaky film in most ways. Even though you know people will say Halloween's a classic, Halloween's better. I like this one better, and, and you know I know that's uh, apostasy, if you will, but I really do find this to be the more effective of the two films. Um, basically, the story behind this was that Halloween Two was supposed to be the last chapter of the Halloween uh, series with you know Michael Myers and all that stuff. Uh, but when they did the next one, which Carpenter was involved, which was Halloween Three. Uh, People were upset with it. Now, I enjoyed the shit out. I still like the film, but it was so different that people were like, hey, where's Michael Myers? How come this isn't a slasher film? What the hell is this? Uh, so, you know, then they brought him back and did the rest of those films, as you know, for better or worse. Um, Nancy Loomis once again shows up in this, and I had made a note in here. It's like, you know, that's her real name, Loomis, because she's in a film with, you know, John Pleasant as Dr. Loomis once again. Um you know, Charles Cyphers again. Uh, Dana Carby was one of the assistants in here from Wayne's World and Saturday Night Live. Um, basically, that's all I have to say about this one, unless you want to tackle something there. No, I, I, I agree with you. It's a, it's, it's, it's a good movie. It's, it's underrated. I think it's forgotten. Um, it's definitely creepy, and it's yeah, yeah. It's a good hospital horror film. It's it's definitely one that should be uh, given more, um, should be looked at more, uh, because whether or not Carpenter, or Rick, Rick Rosenthal, who the hell is Rick Rosenthal? Yeah, it's a nobody. What else did he do? <laughs> yeah, like what else did he do? <laughs> uh, no, but he, he obviously was a carpenter crony, but then something happened because he didn't do much after that, if anything. Yeah. Uh, it's effective. It's really good. It, it's you know what you know what's weird about this movie? It's one of the early movies where the doctor shows up blitz drunk. Remember? Yes. Yes. And, and, and he has to like <laughs> to help people out because of being you know there's people the wounded are showing up and people are being attacked in the hospital. It's all fucked up. And he, he can barely. He could barely like function, and uh, the only thing wrong with this movie is this is what and it happens a lot after this, probably influenced by this. The comedy is that no, not so much the comedy. It's like one of the early hospital horrors where there's nobody in the fucking hospital. What hospital you go to, you don't see any security. 
<laughs> Always <laughs> and, and there's like, you know, Michael Myers goes on floors. There ain't nobody there. Where the hell are the nurses? You know, it's like, but that aside, I enjoyed it, and I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, so then he does another one that everybody thinks is one of his greats. Uh, oh. It's actually not one that I like as much as the others. I do like it, so don't get me wrong. But compared Nicholas. to the ones that came before it, uh, yeah, it doesn't work as well, which is the thing. Uh, it's a gruesome remake. He decided, okay, you know what? I'm showing my influences on my sleeve here. Let me go back and remake one of their films. So he goes back and makes Howard Hawks the thing. All right, logical choice, you know, considering he's done so many of these things about that are not only Hawksian, but that involve the sense of isolation and whatever else. Uh, so he goes back and makes the film, and honestly, the original is so much better, so much better. Um, it was so popular that it actually inspired many, many years later its own video game. Those of you who have, like, I think it was on the Wii, uh, pretty bad game actually, but I remember enjoying it just because it reminded me of the film. Uh, for the positive, it's tense, it's claustrophobic as shit. There's some really good acting in it. And it's a likable, like, guy film, you know, kind of like a, a canon film, uh, cast in an isolated setting. Uh, and, you know, like I said, the cast is really good. You've got Kurt Russell in it. you got Wilford Brimley, who's now selling, like, diabetes medication or something. He used to do, like, Pepperidge Farm or some shit. But it was a strange choice, but he fit. Uh, Richard Dysart, Richard Mazur. I mean, good, good acting. Uh, but the negatives on this is actually what a lot of people like. The special effects by Rob Bottino. Fucking disgusting. I'm sorry, I hate them. Uh, <laughs> hyper gory. Uh, I actually wrote as a note in here. Thanks, Rob. You know, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> disgusting. I mean, it's like it takes the body horror of Cronenberg and ramps it up into like you want to throw up watching it. It's like I don't need to see this. I know it's a fucking alien. I know it changes shape. Really, you gotta show me every like gruesome like you know dripping appendage and you know oh wait here's the dog's head splitting into a person. I'm like and then the legs pop out. And it's funny in a way. I mean, my father used to laugh at it like crazy because it's so ridiculous. But it's just like uh, it, it, that's what ruins it for me. I would rather have you know I'm the kind of guy that would rather have a suggestive film you know like something from the early 30s where you kind of know what's going on or an Edgar Wallace film where it's even more obvious in your face but you know you know what's going down they show you enough that you're titillated and you're horrified and you're whatever you don't need to have like you know somebody's intestines hanging in front of you like a fucking SOV I mean yeah I enjoy some SOVs but not for that uh, this just I don't know I'm sorry the special effects need to go they were horrible and everybody loves it so you know I can't really say anything other than what I just said so your turn uh, uh, well, it's a lot, but I'll try. I try to keep it down. Uh, well, oddly enough, there's a score by Ennio Morricone, which sounds yes. just like a John Carpenter score. Yeah, it's a bad uh, score by Morricone. It's actually my least favorite of all of his scores, except for the one he did for *Phantom of the Opera* for Argento. But it does sound like a John Carpenter score, correct? Right. In a way, yeah. In a way, like if you listen Too to a song by. Assault on uh, Pushing 13, and you listen to this, you would think it's Carpenter and not Morricone. Very strange. Um, the body politic, the body horror thing, well, you know what? I, I've i always had a difficult time with this movie. I, my, my, most of my life, I've had a love-hate relationship with this picture because the claustrophobia, the acting is really, really good from people right. we wouldn't think 
are really good top tier actors. So you gotta remember, mm-hmm. a lot of these guys did do a lot of theater. And you know, when I when I mention this in our show, when I say so and so did theater, you know, I was like hitting the boards every night, seven, eight times a week, ten times a week. So you know, they hone their craft. And uh, a lot of these smaller part guys did a lot of theater, except for Kurt Russell. I'm sure he did at some point, maybe. Uh, but Kurt Russell's really good in this, in a more subdual role. It's not an action movie. Yeah. Um, it's far from it. It's just claustrophobic. It's creepy as hell. It's eerie. And then we have these go for the gusto um, ladder effects, etc. Some of this stuff is even no matter how many times I've seen it, some of the stuff is a bit much. Yeah. And by 20 minutes before the end of the film, you're just like wiped. And and even no matter how many times I've seen it, it's just gruesome, gruesome movie. Yeah. Um, it, it does contain one of my all-time favorite scenes is though when they're all tied to chairs and couches and Kurt Russell has the flamethrower. Yes, which the flame goes out and they can't light it, and and the thing is they all take a little bit of blood from everybody who's left, and yep. put it in a little petri dish, and 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 he puts the flame through it and the the idea is like well if the flame touches it this blood will actually animate and just blot out, and you know who who's who's infected and and. I know it was it Donald Moffat? Yes, Donald Moffat. I don't want to spend the rest of my life tied to this, tied fucking, to this fucking couch. couch. Yes, I actually have those I, of you who learned I, at I level about a year back. I have a crazy friend who was a big horror film guy, and he loved to do quote quotes from films that he loved, and that was one. That and I do not believe any of this voodoo bullshit, which is also from the movie. Uh, Keith David. Yeah. 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 I mean, funny, funny. I mean, like you said, you're mirroring what I said. I love the film if you cut out the fucking Robotine special effects. Then it would be a great film, and I would love the shit. As it is, it's hard to watch. So, It's a difficult one. Go ahead. Uh, so, next up, uh, we mentioned Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. He was actually the uncredited writer, uh, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, of all people. Uh, and, you know, like I said, it was much maligned at the time, but I always kind of liked it. Uh, less now than I did over the years, but I used to like it a lot more is when it was really hated. Uh, and like we said, nothing to do with Michael Myers. There's that predatory uh, Celtic warlock who's also a toy maker. Uh, you know, he mass-produces like Halloween masks, and he's using uh, unsuspecting American children as a mass sacrifice to whatever the hell. Yeah, it's cheesy, but it's fun, and there's enough of the investigative mystery going on, you know, with Tom Atkins and uh, Stacey Nelkin, whoever else she is. Uh, and Jamie Lee Curtis is in it as an uncredited voice again. Uh, Tommy Lee Wallace himself does the uh, the voice of the Shamrock commercial announcement. Uh, and Daniel Hurley, who was a writer uh, that did a lot of stuff early on, uh, maybe with Carpenter, maybe otherwise, but I just remember his name. I think he did stuff like... Uh, what the hell was that zombie movie? Uh, Dead or Alive, the one from 1980, uh, the one where the whole town is corpses at the mortuary. Uh, oh, he, that's a TV yeah. movie, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it wasn't a TV movie, um, but I can't remember the name of the damn thing. I, I've seen it years ago. I still have it somewhere. Um, but anyway, 
uh, he's in this as well as the Connell Cochran, who is the uh, the wizard. Um, again, you know, my opinions would have changed over the years. You know, things that I used to love, I feel less for now. Things that I used to, you know, deride, sometimes I really love now because I've rediscovered them. This is one of those cases where it's something I loved for years, and now it's like, all right, it's not bad, but it's not as good as I remembered it. Um. So, unless you have anything else you want to say that we didn't already address, I'll just. Well, move on. I, 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 I always like this movie, and uh, it's a very strange, weird, uh, unusual movie. It's also uh, in the vein of the fog. It's also had like shares like same kind of picturesque locations. Right. Uh, Tom Atkins is great. Tom Atkins at the peak of his career at this mm-hmm. period, uh, uh, doing throwaway lines. You know, Nine of the Creeps was the best of his stuff, but. Uh, <laughs> He was doing some great stuff in this. And there was an unusual, what do we call these things back in the day? May-December romance kind of thing going on with him and Stacey Yeah. Norman. Yeah. And I remember I asked Tom Nackins about this. <laughs> He's cagey. So I was like, okay, I'll respect you. <laughs> <laughs> Never respect him. Because them. I think <laughs> my, my question was along the lines of, like, not that you screw chasing uh, Stacey Nelkin, but, like, you know, what were your thoughts on this? Character and she's much obviously much younger. Yeah, and he he was he was yeah not 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 intended for audio, but um, <laughs> interesting. So uh, I like it. I still do. It's a strange, weird movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a good movie. It's just I used to love it, and now it's like okay, I kind of like it. It's well, changed you might for love me. It again. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, I loved it for many years. Uh, like something we talked about last week, I think, was uh, Night of Dark Shadows. And, you know, thinking about it, I still think it is better than House. But, again, I've rediscovered House, so now lately that's my new one that I prefer the two. Same thing here. Um, so Christine comes up next. I thought this one was a huge misstep. Uh, it's a pretty dull affair. It taps into this 80s obsession with all things 1950s. Uh, basically, this geek gets an old car from the 50s. He spends all his time polishing up and obsessing over it. And in the process, he stops being a geek, finds a girlfriend, and, oh, wait, the car comes to life. as a jealous woman who kills off everybody that comes between him and the car. Uh, there's lots of cheesy TV actors on there. Um, Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, Harry Dean Stanton, Kelly Preston, the future uh, Mrs. John Travolta, uh, William Ostrander. I don't know. I, I just I have no affection for this film whatsoever. I never liked it, and I like it even less now. Uh, you, have, you have anything you want to say about it? Well, Keith Gordon, you know, he's he uh, was great, and um, Brian De Palma's dressed to kill, uh, and uh, I think probably he was he was like you know hot 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 tamale item at this point in his career <laughs> before it became a weird looking bald. <laughs> now that he's like our age and he's older, he still looks the same. It's very strange, but he's young. And, I mean, he's old and old. And like Ralph Macchio? <laughs> no, Ralph Macchio still looks good, actually. Uh, uh, the, the weird thing about this movie is, yeah, I didn't care for it then. It's it's based on a Stephen King that was very popular. Um, the movie did well. You know, oh, yeah. I, I, I just, I didn't care. I don't give a shit. 
It's Stephen uh, King, and I hate Stephen King. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, the best thing he put out in terms of like movies that were made on his stuff. I mean, yeah, everybody says The Shining, but it wasn't that great. It was not one of Kubrick's best. Uh, Jack Nicholson's fine in it, but I don't know. Uh, personally, I would say The Langoliers was probably the best thing they made off of Stephen King. I am not a Stephen King fan. I'm sorry. Although maybe I'll see Salem's Lot. That's true, and we'll get to that when we talk yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, no, just... I, I think we both agree, Christine. Nah. Yeah. So, um, 1984, he does Starman, and this is when it gets really weird. Uh, Karen Allen, uh, Jeff Bridges, uh, Richard Shako, Buck Flower again. It's a horrid, horrid romance with some sci-fi elements. You know, think like a dumbed-down mix of Close Encounters and ET, but looking forward to the eventual ghost which is the closest to. This movie sucks. Uh, I remember I was at a convention at that time as a you know a teenager, and Karen Allen showed up and talking about this film, trying to promote it, and I'm like, wow, this film looks bad, and sure enough, it was horrible. Uh, but it made money for him. You know, it was popular. You know, the Hoi Poli loved it, but oof, bad film. Uh, anything you want to say about this one? I, I, th- I thought uh, I had a thing for Karen. <laughs> Karen Allen. I don't got a problem with her. It's just... And I still do. And and I like Jeff Bridges. I like I, I, I Jeff Bridges is a unique presence in American history. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought this was this yeah, that's the best way to put it, right? Um, I I thought this was an unusual role for him. I thought he did very well in this unusual even back then, he was he was a rebel. You know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Jeff Bridges but, has always been a rebel, so to see him tame himself and to do something like this, I respect him for that. As far as being a John Carpenter movie, it's not the Carpenter movie we would have wanted, but no. I guess every so often you have to make a medium-budget film for the masses, and this did very well. Yeah, that's what he was doing. He was going for the gusto, going for the money, and trying to not become pigeonholed as a genre director. And he would do that throughout his career, as you've probably already seen, and you'll see more as we go on. Uh, it's just the film sucked. I'm sorry. Um, so 1986, here's one that I think we've discussed in the past as well. It's one of those fuckers like Buckaroo Banzai that every one of your cool friends claims to love this thing, and you look at them like, why do you have three heads? What the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, Big Trouble with Little China. It's a bizarre, arguably yellow, yellow peril-like fantasy about some mystical underworld beneath Chinatown. It has this enormous, enormous fan base, especially among like cult film fans and hipsters and geeks and whatever, but I always thought it sucked ass, and I still do. Um... Kung Fu film Carter Wong appears in this one, who's in stuff like you know, Return of the 18 Bronze Men. Kim, Kurt Russell's in it. Kim Cattrall is in it, who sort of looks like Tracy Lords. Uh, Dennis Dunn is in it. He was kind of a uh, bit player, uh, you know, catch-all Asian actor at the time. James Hong, who we discussed previously. Uh, you told me he actually did porn. Uh, Victor Wong, who pops up again. A lot of people pop up in his next film, which is much better. Uh, you know, who else is in this? Really, nobody else you'd think of. Richard Burton's uh, daughter. Richard Burton's daughter. Uh, Kate Burton? Okay. Uh, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's a fantasy. It, you know, it's a fantasy with, like, yellow peril elements, and it also reminds me of Time Bandits, but Time Bandits was better because at least it had midgets in it, you know, which is funny there, uh, just for that fact. <laughs> 
you know, you get to see uh, what's his name there, Deep Roy and shit. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'd rather oh. see them than Big Trouble in Little China. I hate this fucking movie, and yet people love it, and it's like a big cult that's got around it. I don't understand it. I never understood. It. I didn't understand it in 1986. I thought my friends were fucked up for loving this movie. Now here we are in 2016, and I think people are fucked up for loving this movie. Please explain to me why this movie is great. I'll never see it. I, I just can't understand it. So go ahead. Uh, well, 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 I have a cool T-shirt based on a movie. That's about that. It's probably better than the whole movie. Uh, no, I agree with you. If you get a bunch of your friends together like geek and semi-cool and maybe very cool, and then you bring up this film, all of a sudden you're the only one left alive. Because yes. everybody is like, you don't like this movie? Yeah. And they try to... They try to... Convince they you. try to... Uh, yeah, they try to... 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 Uh, justify... That's not the right word, but they're trying to like, well, this is why it's so cool. And like, wait a minute. In Escape from New York, Kurt Russell was iconographic. He worked. Right. Here, he, he didn't even bother to work out to define his muscles, so he's like this yep. beefy, doughy guy. <laughs> he talks in like a pseudo-John Wayne-ish growl, but not yep. quite. And okay, but he's also a bit racist toward his only a- his only friend who's an Asian. You said a bit? <laughs> this whole I know. What do they call him? Short Round or Charlie Fat? Whatever I, he calls it. You listen to this show, and, you know we are not politically correct. This is the most racist fucking film made in the last 30 years. So go ahead. <laughs> and, 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 and you don't like any of the girls, so he's going out saving. He thinks they're a pain in the ass. Right? Yep. He's got to go correct, for the white girl. Right? Yes. Yeah, but even, even, yeah, I know. The, the Asian's really the cute one. But at of the course, same time, though. Yeah. <laughs> but he, but yo, but but, but <laughs> you fucking through me. We've got an inside but, joke here, folks. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but no, what I'm trying to say is, what I'm trying to say is, though, like he doesn't even like the girls he's saving. He could care less. And then, like when he he loses them to the villain time and time again. Yep. He's like, why well, don't? We? And then Dennis. Dennis, whatever his name, Dennis Dunn, yeah. whatever his name. He's like the guy, Jack, Jack, we gotta go back and save them. And he's like, well, why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like the Birmingham Brown, like a Charlie Chan movie, but Charlie Chan movies weren't this racist. This movie is unfucking believable. I mean, it's so. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I hate to be, you know, because I'm not politically correct, but I mean, it's offensive and shitty in every way that counts. And there's nothing good about it. I mean, you give me something like The Jitters, I love it. You give me like an old Yellow Pearl film from the turn of the century, you know, those old Fu Manchu films and Charlie Chan films. I love them the shit. It drives my wife nuts. I'm a huge anime Wong fan. You know, I love these kind of things. There was a Japanese actor named, I think it was Takashi, I forget his name, uh, who was actually cast usually as a Hong Kong detective in the early 30s, you know, pre COVID films, popped up in a lot of them. I love those things, all those Warner Olin films. You give me something like this, I'm like, what is there about this film that's any good? What is it saving grace? And yet you have people quoting lines from it, like it's a Monty Python film, and it's just, 
I, I don't know. Like you said, when I'm in a room with friends and they bring this film up, I'm the only one standing there going, I don't know if I should say anything. I, I can't tell them how much I hate this fucking film because <laughs> they'll be like going at me for hours. And it's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Just walk away. Let it go and get on to the next subject. Oh, my God. I do not understand why this film has a cult. Just like the other films we had mentioned, you know, Tom Bandits and uh, Buckaroo Banzai and all just crap that people love. Uh, anyway, so uh, 1987, he makes a big step up, actually brings a lot of the cast or a good portion of the, the Asian cast from that film with him and kind of redeems it uh, with Prince of Darkness, which this is – in a lot of ways, one of my favorites, if not my favorite of his films. Now, not as a pure film. He's done better. We've already mentioned the, my favorites there. But in terms of the guy started tapping into uh, – it's, it's a somewhat prescient rumination on the parallels between science and religion with theoretical physics, uh, which were kind of cutting edge at the time, uh, proving the reality behind metaphysics. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's extremely dark and claustrophobic, and especially, like I said at the time, it was very cutting edge with its science. And not only that, but the fact that it was tapping into why do some things work? You know, why does for the Christians out there, why does prayer seem to work? For the uh, cultists out there, why does magic seem to work? You know, what is the real meaning behind these things? Why do scientists tell us that the universe is basically made up of mathematics? What is this whole thing about fractals? You know, on and on and on. It's always tapping into this. Uh, you know, those in interested in this basic subject, parallels between cutting-edge physics and mathematics is the building blocks of existence and faith, you know, Eastern and Western religious traditions, the occult, you know, kind of all melded together, you may be interested in checking out the Moving Towards Light podcast archives. We uh, touched on a lot of that stuff there. Uh, very, very deep film in ways that I'm not even sure he intended. Uh, but on other respects, you know, as a pure film, it's another one of these claustrophobic siege films. You know, it's it's very similar in the ways to, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, there's an unusual cast which pulled then popular television stars, Alice Cooper, Donald Pleasance, and for the time, you know, like I said, from the carried over from Big Trouble in Little China, an unusual degree of Asian actors and actresses. I mean, it was rare at the time to find this many in a film uh, altogether. Uh, so you've got Donald Pleasance as a priest uh, who kind of knows the whole secret behind this. Uh, Victor Wong's over from the other movie as the head professor. He's kind of like a, a David Suzuki type, those of you who know him. Uh, Jameson Parker from Simons and Simons in this damn thing. Uh, you know, being a little dim-witted, but fine. Uh, Dennis Dunn redeems himself here as sort of the comic... Uh, uh, well, he's still a scientist, but he's kind of like the, the jokester. Uh, very likable. And Yen's in this. Uh, she's very pretty. Tom Ray, who was from Riptide. Uh, Tom Ray, I should say. He was like the nerdy guy from Riptide, uh, those of you who remember that show. Uh, Alice Cooper was kind of like a, a wordless part this time. It wasn't like Monster Dog. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, people knew it. It was like, oh, wow, Alice Cooper's in this. Cool. Uh, it's definitely in a lot of ways, one of my favorite films ever just for the concepts it's evoking. Not in terms of pure film, but in terms of the concepts it's evoking. I'm like, ooh, that was really fucking deep. 
I'm surprised that somebody said this, especially somebody that's not usually thought of as a philosopher or a metaphysician or you know a spiritualist. So very, very interesting film, and unfortunately a lot of people don't understand it and therefore just view it on a level of, wow, this is a really kind of odd, cartoony horror film that I can't figure out, and therefore it sucks. So uh, you got, it's got a lot of hate behind it that it does not deserve. Uh, so what's your take on this? Uh, no, that's that's very well put. Yeah, because you, you could take it as a surface value, as a movie that does not work. You know, with these odd touches. Um, it's probably his last. Well, this and the next one we're going to discuss probably the last two really good films for a yes. while. Yeah. But uh, uh, yes, it has a lot of deep stuff going on underneath. Um. But you have to open yourself when you watch this and decide beforehand what kind of ride you want to take with this movie. And and, and uh, yes, I have to agree with you 100%. It was surprising that this filmmaker, knowing his previous work, would make this kind of movie. It was surprising. Yeah, yeah. The statement coming from that person was like, what the? Okay. Surprised you tapped into that one. It was, it was almost uh, magical, <laughs> in a way. But at the uh, same time, though, when when he did They Live, though, he's on another. He's on. He's still. He's still firing on all cylinders. Yes, They so Live. He's doing something a little different, but he's also really fucking with us, and he's trying to jolt us. So now he's already done this bizarre statement on metaphysics and theoretical physics and the meaning of life and existence in a weird way, uh, tangentially, but you know, nonetheless. Then he goes and makes this prescient, uh, not only apropos for the time, but looking forward to where we are now, uh, statement on politics. Um, it's actually the most political film he ever made. Uh, he takes on the corporatization of America and how marketing in politics as well as in commerce stops at nothing, including subliminal influence, to keep us as the populace sedate and obedient while they destroy everything we hold dear. It's an amazing film in that respect, and yet most people see it as a comic book and only remember the big street fight that goes on for 20 minutes between Roddy Piper and uh, – uh, who was it? Keith David? I forget who the guy was. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the wrestler's in this. Best thing he ever did except for maybe – and that's not even close uh, – Hell Comes to Frogtown. Um, you know, Keith David's likable as the um, – what do you want to call him? I mean, he's not the sidekick. He's kind of his partner. You know, he's a big, big, hulking black guy. Adversarial psychic? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, adversary, but then he becomes his buddy, and they're working together. So uh, once he shows him you know, what's going on between the glasses, he basically, like the Matrix, he shows him what's going on beneath the lines, if you will. Um, you know, Meg Foster's in it, another one of her decent roles that she was doing at that time, kind of like the win for Nico Mastarakis. Uh, those of you who are interested in that, and you definitely want to check out my interview with Nico on Third Eye Cinema. Uh, Raymond St. Jacques, who was in stuff like Cotton Comes to Harlem, Cool Breeze, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, which came out on Code Red, uh, The Green Berets. He's in this thing. Uh, Buck Flowers in it again. You know, on some levels, it is very cartoony, but, um, you know, cause it's aliens and stuff, and you can always see, you know, we put on the special glasses, now you see that all the signs say obey and, you know, consume and, you know, uh, spend and whatever, and yet 
it's not just like um, George Romero doing a comment on mall culture when he did uh, Dawn of the Dead. This is much more intense. I mean, the only other film that I think is this political that was in like this sort of a milieu was Romero himself doing uh, much later, Land of the Dead. And people didn't mm. like it because it was so obviously political. Uh, this one here is it's prescient in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, he might have been commenting on American advertising and things like that, but no, there's a political message to be found here, especially given the um, rigged election <clears throat> Hillary, uh, going on right now. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's definitely a really good film and probably his last really, really good film. I mean, there's one or two things we can touch on afterwards that are good, but this was kind of the, the tripping point. So uh, anything you want to say about this one? I don't know. I think you said it all with that one. Yeah. Uh, so now he does a bunch of shit, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. It's a crap Hollywood comedy with friggin' Chevy Chase, Daryl Hannah, uh, Rosalind Chow's in it, Sam Neill's in it, but uh, they can't save it. Uh, <laughs> he was not a director, but he pops up in a cheap Italian slapstick comedy from some guy named Ezio Greggio. Which uh, the Silence of the Hams, which is kind of a knockoff of Silence of the Lambs, among other things, really bad, very slapstick, uh, very much Italian comedy, but without the usually with Italian comedy you get a lot of sex in it. You have an Edward Fennec running around or something, or somebody that you can actually laugh at for his, you know, whatever his stupidity, like a um, uh, Franco and Ciccio or a uh, who the hell's the plumber that uh, what's his face, the Scarfellini. Uh, the guy that was always Pierino, uh, of Ritali, somebody like that uh, to distract you. This movie just is pretty bad. But Carpenter shows up in it for a minute as some pervert in a trench coat flashing somebody in the park. Um, then he does Body Bags. Now, this was an HB original. Uh, those of you who had HBO during a certain period probably tremble when I say HB original, wow, those things were shit. Um, when I, whenever I think one, I think right away of This Park is Mine with Tommy Lee Jones, which I would love to see on DVD nowadays just because it was so bad. Uh, this guy basically is like a Vietnam vet, and he freaks out and decides to take over Central Park and fortifies it. <laughs> Hilarious shit. Anyway, Body Bags is one of these pieces of crap. Uh, and this is one of the reasons we wanted to do him with Hooper, which hopefully we'll be able to get to. Uh, it's a portmanteau film, kind of like you know the Amicus used to do, uh, with Carpenter and Toby directing segments. Kind of like uh, not long before Argento did with Romero, that horrible uh, Two Evil Eyes. Same idea right. here. Um, Carpenter's your horror host. He's like a coroner in the morgue, and he looks pretty much dead at this point anyway, so I fit. Uh, he steals the serial killer to the gas station story from 1981's Nightmares. Those of you who have seen that movie. And stars a few fellow directors in the process. So you've got Robert Carradine in this, Wes Craven's in it, Sam Raimi's in it, uh, David Naughton's in it, and Buck Flowers in it again. Then he does some stupid thing about Stacey Keach going bald. I don't know. Uh, we'll get to the Hooper film uh, when we get to our segment when we get to him. Uh, I had no regard for this film whatsoever. It's basically crap. Uh, but, you know, and it wasn't even worthy of a VHS release. It was, here, we did this for HBO. So, is there anything you want to say about it for you? No, no I didn't like it either. So, then we go to what I think is uh, his last good theatrical film, but it's not as good as what came before. It's already a huge step down, which is In the Mouth of Madness. It's a pretty good attempt at getting Lovecraft to celluloid, which really always fails. Uh, and there's a lot of cult names in the cast. Sam Neill's in it. 
Uh, Jorgen Prochnow is in it. Uh, David Warner is in it from uh, things like uh, Nightwing, for example. Um, Bernie Casey is in it. Uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, Hayden Christensen, who is Anakin Skywalker's in it as the paper boy. Uh, and Julie Carmen's in it, who's a nobody, but she was kind of cute with her page boy haircut. Um, it, it doesn't work as a film, but as a sort of a uh, Russian or Chinese puzzle box. You know, there's ones where you keep opening it, and there's another one, and a smaller one, and a smaller one. And uh, it's one of those kind of a things uh, where it questions the metatextual nature of reality. Uh, the closest thing I've seen to it outside of you know the Lovecraft that he was attempting to evoke is there's a pair of video games out there going under the title of Alan Wake, and they are very much influenced by In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, and in that respect, it's pretty cool. But as a film, I don't know. It, it definitely doesn't live up to what he was doing before this. So anything you want to say here? Well, I mean, he was obviously trying to tap into some some uh, things he did with Prince of Darkness, I felt. But Sam Neill is a, it's a problematic actor because it's it's rare, it's few and far between roles where I've seen him where I can feel uh, connected or comfortable with his character. And so he's creepy right away for me. And, and and so it's right away it takes me to places that are, that are strange and uh, yeah it's a well it's Lovecraft too so you know right away it's like Lovecraft has seldom been done well I've seen some mm-hmm. indie guys do do pretty good job uh, and I'm talking really indie guys I'm talking like guys you probably don't even know about yeah. and um, so. Uh, it's probably the, not even as good Guillermo, as... Guillermo del Toro has been trying to do this for a long time, oh, too. Oh, yeah, he's been trying to do the Mountains of Madness for years and never got it off the ground. Yeah. I'm waiting for that to happen. Uh, but, you know, actually the closest I can think of outside of this one to Lovecraft, the two unnameable films, and uh, yeah, yeah. there's one other thing. Oh, a Necronomicon, which never came to DVD over here. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those portmanteau films with Jeffrey Combs in it. Not great. But both of those came the closest to Lovecraft outside of this. But again, it yeah, never yeah. quite there. So, so yeah, I think I think that's what he was trying to achieve. But you know, I think he was he was defeated at the gate. I think with this. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I appreciate it for what he's trying to do, but it doesn't work. Uh, so again, more shit after this. Village of the Damned. It's an unwatchable remake of a film I didn't like in the first place. It's actually I had it in a box set of like you know four Carpenter films. It was the only one I sold off immediately. Piece of shit. Christopher Reeve, you know Superman, of course. Uh, Kirstie Alley from Cheers before she put all the weight on. Um, Let's see, Michael Pere from Streets of Fire and Eight in the Cruisers. Mark Hamill, you know, Luke Skywalker and the Joker uh, is in this, but uh, horrible, horrible film. I have I don't I can't even think of a good word to say about it. Uh how about you? Anything you wanna Well, the original British uh Village of the Damned is is a, a great movie. It's it's a watershed <laughs> picture in British sci fi. Um why bad... he would want to do this or adapt it or remake it, whatever you want to call it. I have no idea. Um, you can't really blame the cast. I mean, they're actually all the names you mentioned. Well, I don't know about Christy Alley. 
But all the other names, I've seen them do fine work over the years. You know, the, some of those people are actually have done a couple of good things. You know, even Michael Pare, I've seen him do a couple of good things. And but this doesn't work. This is like if you throw a bunch of shit in a blender and you tell somebody, "I'm going to put it on a pizza and you're going to eat it." No. <laughs> says it all. Uh, that's actually true. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so, <laughs> speaking of shit on a pizza, uh, 1996 now, he does Escape from L.A. It's a bad, bad CG-driven remake that nobody asked for. He even hooked up with Deborah Hill for production on this one. Oh, my God, what a piece of shit. Kurt Russell's in I it wanted again. a sequel. Steve Buscemi's <laughs> in it. Peter Fonda's in it. Cliff Robertson's in it. Stacey Keach, Pam Greer, Bruce Campbell, Poor Bartell, Robert Carradine. He's got a big cult cast, and yet, wow. Oh, my God. All I ever picture is him flying in that stupid, like, whatever the hell it was, the skitter or whatever, and all the bad CG going on in the background. It looks like a five-year-old did the CG on this thing. It's awful. I mean, I, I don't think even fans of the, you know, like huge fans of the original that were really desperately clamoring for this can apologize for this piece of shit. <laughs> I was desperately clamoring for this. Go ahead. What, what's your take? I was desperately clamoring for the sequel. Um, Did you regret it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I have to say, don't shoot me. I It's cuteness. It has a likability factor. Yes, it's it's it's. What happened? I don't know. Did somebody pull a lot of money at the last minute, but they felt like we got to go ahead and finish this? Because it often reeks of that. It often yeah. reeks of... The CG feels of, like it wasn't rendered. It's like it got partway through. They did the in-betweens. They, they're ready for the transition, and then it, they just, okay, that's it. Enough. Put it out in demo version. It's like a beta version of a film. It just... Uh, yeah. 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 Very well done. Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. Yeah. It's like... I actually liked Escape from New York. I want to see more Adventures of Snake Plissken. Unfortunately, Cleve, uh, Lee Van Cleve passed away. Yeah. But I'd like, I'd like to have seen more of this shit. And um, so, okay, we got a bigger budget and then not. Not <laughs> <laughs> big enough. All, all the cool, yeah, and then we got all the cool actors you could think right. of in cult films. And, but we put them in really weird roles. Yep. <laughs> and like in some cases we robbed them of their voice. What? 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 Yep. Yep. And the only thing we could do is find a cool leather jacket for poor Kurt Russell to wear. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but uh, it's very, very disappointing. I have yeah. spoken. It is atrocious. <laughs> so after this, he gets even worse, and he does the film that everybody curses him for, John Carpenter's Vampires. I've actually seen people where it's like almost a trope on the Internet. It's like, yeah, well, he says he's an entertainer. He always says his films are just meant to entertain. Were you entertained by John Carpenter's Vampires? And so it's like a rhetorical question. Piece of shit. It's a mix of The Unforgiven and either The Lost Boys or Near Dark, but it's bloodier and stupider. Uh, James Woods is in it, probably the worst role the guy ever did. Uh, Daniel Baldwin, which just says enough for it be right there, the fact he's in this. And Maximilian Schell slumming it. Oof. Uh, I, that, that's all I got to say. I'm done. <laughs> Anything you want to say on that one? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, uh, it's 
sucks is about the, right, the end of it. Be all end all. Summed up in two words. It sucks. Uh, so, 2001, he does Ghosts of Mars. People, there, there are some apologists for this film. It's bad, though. Uh, maybe not as bad as the stuff that surrounds it, but it's bad. Ice Cube is in the movie. Already you got a problem. Uh, Natasha Henstridge. Jason Statham's in the damn thing. What? Uh, Pam Greer. Robert Carradine again. He carried both of them over from Escape from L.A. They should have known better. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the, the concept seemed really interesting. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll check this film out. Yeah, and it's all of course it's on Mars. It's all kind of filmed in like red scale. I'm like, I don't know. It's just it's so bad. I'm sorry. I want to well, whine. You know, like, I, I, I don't think it's as bad as you say. Actually, I think it has some good set pieces. Carpenter was never one known for his action chops, and uh, this has some interesting stuff going on. No, it's not a great movie. It's it's, it's far from a good John Carpenter movie. But um, it's not as bad as the majority of people have said, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, some people have made apologies for it, and I'm like, should I watch it again? But I can never get myself to do it. It's like, do I really want to go to the, to the dentist and have that abscess pulled? No, not really. Uh, I'll live with it. Um, so then he does a weird, mostly Spanish cast sequel to Vampires with John Bon Jovi in the lead role. Huh? Uh called Vampires Los Muertos. Uh, it's directed by the guy behind Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, but produced by Carpenter. Uh, all Spanish cast for John Bon Jovi. What the fuck? I, I don't even have to say anything. That's enough. Um, and then he does a remake of The Fog. Once again, directed by somebody else, Rupert Wainwright, produced by John Carpenter. And Deborah Hill, starring Tom Welling of Smallville, acted like a nasty prick and super over-sexualized. I guess he was trying to get it out of his system, like make up for his you know, do-gooder role on Smallville for 10 years. Oof, it is. Ugh. I mean, I watched it. I got a laugh at it because it is Tom Welling trying to be all like dirty and nasty. But, wow, it is bad, and the CG is awful in it. Selma Blair's in it. I don't know. And then he does a couple other things, The Ward and Love... That's it. The only thing he did of any value past They Live or possibly past In the Mouth of Madness was he was on Masters of Horror and did a really good segment called Cigarette Burns with Udo Kier in it, uh, which is, I don't know, it's better for you to find it than for me to try to describe it. But it involves angelic forces and this guy trying to trap them and in celluloid, basically, and it's really creepy and really screwed up. And it reminds you in some ways of like an episode of Constantine when it was on the air. Uh, really good. I really enjoyed that one. But everything else he had done really past they live was just undefendable. So <laughs> that's pretty much the end of John Carpenter. I know he's still around. He's not doing too well from what I hear. Uh, but, you know, he's just lost his touch. So uh, anything you want to say about any of those films or summing up? Well, John? yeah, the, the, the Ward I actually saw... Uh... I actually saw it streaming on Netflix, and it's actually a, it doesn't feel like a John Carpenter movie, but it's pretty good if uh, one of my favorite films of the last few years was, uh, uh, this one right, Session 9, which was a creepy, uh, 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 Sanitarium with malevolent forces at work kind of movie, 
and um, the ward is actually a pretty good fucked up kind of picture about this girl who's a arsonist who may have been uh, habitually raped by her father who burns down a house which may or may not have been the family home ends up in the asylum where there are many fucked up people and so not only the people running the asylum but her, her asylum mates and I found it actually was transgressive in many points where it actually messed with the tropes of the genre. By the end, it was kind of, uh, by the end of the movie, it was kind of like, oh, thank you for wasting my last two hours. <laughs> um, one of those endings. It had one of those, like, really? Really? I started to like this, and you did this? But uh, <laughs> at the fault of, like, ruining it for everybody, I won't go there. Which begs me to say, we were going to discuss Toby Hooper tonight. Yeah, but our 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 show length is already almost tamped out. So I was going to ask do? you, did you want to try to do it or not? Because we've only got, I mean, if you're going by the actual show length, I and mean, we go over a lot, but uh, there's only like 10 minutes left, and we've got to do like, you know, basically, even though that we're not doing all his films, we got like six to eight films to cover, and it seems kind of short change to even say, all right, well, even if we stay around for like 20 after, you're talking about a half an hour? Um, no, so do no. you so try to reschedule him? We, 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 will, we will figure out a way to discuss Toby Hooper this season. Yes, no, we'll, we'll get him in. We will definitely get him and, in. Uh, yeah. If any of our shows ever run short, which never seems to happen, we can be thrown on there, or we'll just tack it on at the end, uh, because we do need to get to him. Uh, that was part of the plan. It's just... You know, like I said, John Carpenter uh, was one of my favorite directors during a certain period, yeah. and there was a lot to say here about the films he put out. So, uh, our apologies. Oh, yeah, and we had fun. We, and I, th- I think we, we talked about some things. You know, we, we didn't bullshit around with some things. But, um, yeah, but it's true indeed. There, there's quite a few Toby Hooper movies, Funhouse, Poltergeist, Life Force, Invaders from Mars, and et cetera, Texas. Eating Alive, Selms Lot, and, you know. Right, exactly. So, we don't want to shortchange him because actually yeah. uh, he's, he's done some really interesting pictures. So uh, we will, we will, uh, you will hear us discuss Toby Hooper. Yeah, it's a promise. <laughs> this was not intentional. Even though I said in the beginning that I wasn't a huge Cooper fan, I do like a lot of the films that we are going to discuss. And uh, yeah. we will get to it, and we'll get to it soon. It's just uh, time ran short on us, which happens. Um so I guess uh, we can call it quits. Any, any final words you want to say on John Carpenter, at least? I actually do. I actually do. He's he's sixty eight, and actually anybody who has a, who has a computer, duh. <laughs> uh, John has released through Amazon recently two CDs of uh, new uh, electronic music. Oh, I heard about um, that. Yes. Uh, which which I find very interesting, and he's touring this spring and summer uh, really? at the age of sixty eight and cigarettified. He's probably petrified. The man's a habitual chain smoker. Yes, uh, I am not one for like calling the kettle black, but man, this guy. I mean, he's sixty eight. He looks like a hundred and forty. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Like I said, by the time he did body bags, he already was typecasting himself as the corpse-like coroner. <laughs> uh, but, but, 
but that that all said, he 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 will be on tour. I I don't know particulars. You have to look on the internet, people. But he did release two uh, soundtrack CDs of all new music recently. I don't know what they sound like. I don't know. I assume it's like. He's got those drones going on with him between the. So, um, so uh, that's the most recent update on John Carpenter. Uh, apparently, nobody wants to give money to make a movie. Um, <laughs> well, can you blame him, considering what he's put out over the last, what, 20 years? <laughs> it's been a while. Ever, because uh, it could happen. So, And, you know, like I said, Cigarette Burns was not that long ago, so he's still capable of doing something really good. It's just, you know, it's been for the effective televised, if not cable medium, as opposed to, uh, you know, for a theatrical release, which, who knows, he may never get again. Uh, so, uh, I don't know if there's any final words. I think we covered them pretty well. Uh, I am I definitely a John Carpenter fan. Uh, and even the ones that I kind of slagged, for the most part, you know, everything he did up through They Live, and including Cigarette Burns, and including, to some extent, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, I love. So, you know, all respect to the guy. Thank you for giving us many years of good films before you kind of went off your rocker and started making crap. <laughs> uh, and I definitely do recommend him for anybody who may be a newbie to any of these films or, you know, maybe you've seen one or two of them and they're like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know, who cares? Go out and check out the other ones that we mentioned, especially the ones that we liked. Uh, they're definitely worth your time. They're very entertaining. And he is effectively doing, uh, continuing the legacy of the American Western just in different formats, horror, sci-fi, you name it. Um, so true to his heroes. So uh, next week, uh, week 29, uh, we'll be taking on Lamberto Bava and Mikhail Suave. Uh, we discussed two men who started off as prominent assistant directors, and in the case of the latter, an on-screen bit player, uh, later to move on to carve a niche all their own in the annals of Italian cult cinema. Uh, Mikhail Suave worked his way through the Italian film industry, first as an on-screen actor in minor roles for the likes of Fulci, Castellari, Diodato, Cozzi, Diamato, and even Lamberto Bava himself before becoming AD on several Argento, Bava, and D'Amato affairs. But it was a documentary turn on Dario Argento that brought him into the directorial seat, from which he'd go on to direct uh, four of the most distinctive and visual horror films of the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Lamberto Bava would cut his teeth directing Second Unit and serving as AD on his famed father's productions for over a decade, also putting in time under the likes of Dario Argento and Ruggiero Diodato along the way, before graduating to the director's chair on Shock alongside his father, Macabre, and the justly fated Blade in the Dark. Uh, working in tandem with Dario Argento, Bava would make his name with the Demons films, putting out a few more notably odd efforts like Delirium, also known as Photos of Joya, uh, Blast Fighter, and Monster Shark, before moving into telefilms such as the excellent Brivido Giallo series and the Alta Tensione series, and let's not forget Body Puzzle. So join us next week as we return to the ever-flowing stream of Italian cult cinema to discuss Lamberto Bava and Michele Suave, and death metal fans know where I got that ever-flowing stream from. Uh, <laughs> next week on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. Uh, so anything else you want to say before we close out? No, we, we hope you enjoyed the show, and uh, yes, now you know what John Carpenter films to revisit, because we recommended them. <laughs> which was to avoid. <laughs> Some of which are very famous it. and much beloved. <laughs> uh, God knows. No, we, we hope you enjoyed listening to these, us two crazy guys, and uh, <laughs> we hope you'll come back next week and yep. listen for more. That's it. 
So uh, see you next week. Thanks for listening tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little chat on John Carpenter. Uh, next week, we talk Lamberto Bobble and Miklas Suave. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician, join us on air. Drop us a line on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Weird Scenes 1, and website weirdscenes1.com. Weird Scenes 1. Weird Scenes 1. Weird Scenes 1. Weird Scenes 1.